This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Steve Simmons. Steve is Canada's longest-serving and most-read sports writer for over four decades. As the lead sports columnist at Post Media's The Toronto Sun since 1987, his signature Sunday Notes column, Simmons Says, is a weekly staple for readers across the country. A multi-time award-winning journalist, Steve has been inducted into the media wing of the Canadian Football Hall of Fame, and in 2013, he won Sports Media Canada's Award for Outstanding Sports Writing. He has written and collaborated on numerous best-selling books, his most recent being a collection of selected columns called A Lucky Life, Gretzky, Crosby, Kawhi, and more from the best seat in the house. Welcome, Steve, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? I am very well, and good morning to you. Uh, I'm in my office where I spend most of my life. Steve, a visitor to the GTA, has time for only one restaurant lunch. Make the case for Santa Street Deli, serving Thornhill since 1988. Well, you better be a deli lover, first of all, which which I am, I'm, and I'm a deli addict. There was a time in Toronto where you went to Spadina for either Shopsies or Switzers, and that was, those were the places to eat. And then a woman named Cheryl moved from Montreal, and her, her father had a deli there called the Snowden Deli, which was very well known, and she opened up Center Street. And it's been my go-to lunch place ever since, my go-to breakfast place. And when they were open for dinner, which they're not anymore, it was my go-to dinner place. So if you like matzo ball soup, if you like smoked meat sandwiches, if you like great fries, if you like, I mean, almost anything else, that's my case for it. It's not cheap but it's worth every dollar you spend. You heard it here, people. Steve Simmons says, Santa Street Deli, or bust. Let's go all the way back if we can, Steve. Get your whole story. Where were you born? And please describe your upbringing. Born in Toronto. Grew up mostly in North York. Went to York Mills Collegiate as as my high school, then on to the University of Western Ontario. And my first job was in Calgary, at the Calgary Herald, which I... Went to in 1979, um, right out of school and right from the Western Gazette, the student paper on campus. My upbringing, uh, we were, I would say, upper middle class. My dad did quite well in the women's clothing business, so we weren't wanting for anything. But um, when you went to York Mills in those days, there were a lot of well-to-do people, like like the Bitto family, who went on to become the owner of the Raptors and that, that kind of thing. And so I knew a lot of people who were quite well off 
through high school just from from being around. But heading out west by myself in 79, not knowing a person, was an experience all its own. Well, Steve, I do want to go back. Uh, As they say, you went to an institute, the York Mills Collegiate Institute. You were sports editor for the high school yearbook. One day, Dick Beddoes, longtime sports columnist for the Globe and Mail, came to the school to talk about his career. Most of your classmates wanted to talk about the Maple Leafs, but you wanted to talk about journalism, and you ended up having some one-on-one time with the legendary Dick Beddoes. Well, it, it's funny because they used to have those, they probably still have those career days in high school, and they bring a bunch of people in from different vocations and different careers to talk about their business. And in came Dick Beddoes, uh, at that time a very famous sports columnist with the Globe and Mail, and the room was packed. And the questions were leaf question, leaf question, Argo question, leaf question, you know, pro sport question. And after about, I don't know, 10 minutes of it, you could see Beddoes was getting agitated. And he said, does anybody here want to talk about journalism or newspapers? And, and he says, because that's what I'm talking. That's what I'm here to do. I'm here to talk about that. And if you don't, you know, please leave. And all of a sudden the room just cleared out and it was me and Dick Beddoes. And at the time, I said, this is something that I'm interested in, would like to know more about it. And it's funny, we developed kind of a, I don't know if friendship is the right way to put it, a relationship of some kind. You know, this is in high school. When I moved back to Toronto, probably 10 years later, we reestablished the relationship. And Dick Beddoes at the time was doing a weekly phone-in show on CFRB radio. And on the phone-in show, it was a weekly sports show. And then he got sick and cancer had eventually passed. But prior to, to going, he called me and asked me if I would host the show uh, temporarily while he was recovering. And I'd never done any radio before, and I'd never done it. And so I said, yes, you know, I went in there and made a complete mess of everything. Didn't know which buttons to push, didn't know how to work the thing. Nobody showed me how to do anything. It was it was a dog's breakfast. I would use a swearing word, but I'll, I'll, I'll lay off away from that. Uh, it was horrible. And I think I lasted two weeks or maybe three weeks. And at the end of three weeks, Gary Slate, who's in charge of CFRB at the time, said, I don't think this is working out. And, and I knew it wasn't. So it was a, it was a good time to, to say goodbye to, to my, my brief radio career at that point in time. Well, in addition to your high school start with an interest in journalism, you attended our common alma mater, as you noted, the University of Western Ontario, now known simply as Western University. Now, Steve, you were there ostensibly to pursue a, quote, professional career, but what drew you to work on the student newspaper, The Gazette? Remember, it was probably October or so of my first year, and I didn't know very many people at Western. And I had moved, you know, from Toronto to the university and, you know, like everybody else, trying to make friends and and go ahead. And I thought, what a good way to meet people. There was a little thing in the Western Gazette. Would you like to write for the Gazette? I had done some of, you know, the writing in high school and the editing of the high school yearbook. And I thought, oh, this would be fun, a nice way to meet people and something social. And so I signed up uh, in first year for the Gazette. Um, By second year, I think... I spent all my time at the Gazette and almost no time in the classrooms. Um, by third year, I knew exactly what I was doing for my career, if I could do it, if I could find jobs and all that kind of thing. And I remember phoning home because my dad, in his mind, wanted me to go to law school. And I remember phoning home and saying, Dad, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a journalist. And his first line, after I think I heard dial tone first, 
his first line was, are you prepared to be poor? And, you know, you're, you're 21 years old and you're idealistic and you don't know what the future is going to bring. And I said, you know, I just love this. And I'm, I'm, you know, journalism is not a taught profession. It's a go out there and do profession. And you have to have a certain passion for it. And I had, I had the passion almost from the first day I got to the Western Gazette. You know, I am forever thankful to the Gazette and to the people I was with there and to the university, I'll still say the University of Western Ontario. I used to have those UWO shirts. Uh, thank, thankful for how it changed my life. As you said, you just got to get out and do it. And that is what you did after graduation, 1979. At the age of 22, you joined the Calgary Herald. Now, there was no NHL team there at the time, so you were serving as a junior hockey reporter. Steve, how'd you end up with a front-page article in the Calgary Herald concerning then-Atlanta Flames GM Cliff Fletcher? Well, you have to realize it wasn't it wasn't like what we call today major junior hockey. I was Tier 2 junior hockey, which, like I said, Ontario is the provincial Ontario league. It's the lowest form of junior hockey you can find. And I think I was the 14th guy on a staff of 14 at the time at the Herald. And I was covering the Alberta Junior Hockey League, which was a wild place in those days, but nobody really cared about any of this stuff. But I just thought, I'll, I'll make a beat out of it and we'll see what happens. The best player in the league was a guy named Brent Sutter. The best goalie in the league who played for the Calgary team that I covered uh, was Mike Werner. And so he sort of got established in, in junior hockey and who was what. And uh, at the end of the season, I was going to the Alberta Junior Hockey League awards banquet around April or May, I think. And, and what happened was the referee in chief, typical of those kind of leagues, was a real estate agent by day. He, you, you can't make, you don't get paying jobs being referee in chiefs in, in, in tier two hockey. And, and he comes up to me and says, you wouldn't believe the call I got today. I said, what was the call? He said, I got a call from Cliff Fletcher in Atlanta. And he asked me to find him three houses. One for him, one for David Poyle, his assistant, and one for Al McNeil, the coach of the Flames. And I said, is this, is this on the record? Like, are you telling me this on the record? I can use this. I'm going to get you in trouble, whatever. And he said, nope, you can use it. And I went back to the office. We were an afternoon paper in those days. Went back to the office, you know, after the banquet, late at night, wrote the story about this was the first confirmation that the Flames were moving from Atlanta. There had been some rumors and there had been some other stuff, but nothing that confirmed it. This was confirmation. If they, you know, if these people are looking for houses, then they're moving. And uh, I wrote it and it was front page across the top of the Calgary Heralds, you know, screaming as much as a, a, a broadsheet screams. It was funny because at that time, the Toronto Sun publisher, Doug Creighton, and the big people of the Toronto Sun were in Calgary making arrangements to buy the Albertan newspaper and turn it into the Calgary Sun. And they saw the front page, and I guess they, they asked around, like, who is this guy who wrote the story? And it was me, and they wound up. I went from covering the Alberta Junior Hockey League and being the 14th guy on a staff of 14 to moving to the Calgary Sun when it started in August, as, as at the time, covering the Stampeders, which was the number one beat prior to the Flames movie. And now that you are with this upstart Calgary Sun, as you know, you transition over from the Calgary Stampeders and the CFL coverage. Calgary's new NHL team, the Flames, had now moved north from Atlanta. You eventually became the Sun sports editor, 
before moving back to the more established Calgary Herald. Steve, at the age of 30, how did the Toronto Sun's new sports editor, Wayne Parrish, woo you back to your hometown Toronto Sun in 1987? Well, I, I knew Wayne Parrish quite well from traveling. Like, you know, I think we covered the 1984 uh, Olympics in Los Angeles together. And in those days, you know, sort of the columnists from every paper got to know each other, you know, at Grey Cups or at large events or Canada Cups or any of the things that were going on in those days. So I forged a relationship with Wayne. And I guess my reputation had grown a little bit uh, in, in those days in Calgary. When he took over in 1980, I think it was 80, around October of 86, he took over from George Gross as sports editor of the Sun. He left the star to go to the Sun. That was a big move in those days. And he, um, he called me one day and said, I have three jobs available that I'm looking to add are you interested in any of these jobs? One of them was a baseball writer. One of them was a, for lack of a better, I got a takeout writer. And one of them was like an investigative reporter. And I said, I'm not really interested in the baseball job, but the other ones interest me. And uh, we, we went back and forth for a while about talking about the job. And then he called me back saying, you know, that the three jobs is now two jobs. Unfortunately, the, you know, they cut, one of the jobs out. So I'm looking basically for a part investigative reporter, part takeout guy, and a baseball writer. And he gave me some names of the people he was looking for to hire as a baseball writer. Turns out he hired Bob Elliott, who is now in the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, which is the amazing for a Canadian or anyone else for that matter. And a few days after hiring Bob Elliott, he hired me. And we started basically at the same time. I think Bob started about a month before I did because um, I had to move from Calgary. He was moving from Ottawa. And the first byline story I had in the Toronto Sun as a Sun staffer was a double byline with Bob Elliott about could they put uh, grass in the newly or about to be newly built Sky Dome. Of course, it wasn't possible, but, but it seemed to be a popular topic at the time. And it's ironic to me that here, here are you know two guys who've done pretty well for themselves, you know, being hired a few days apart, and it, it goes to show also, you know, the the eye and the nose that Wayne Parrish had for what was going on in the journalism world at the time. Certainly, Wayne also gets some credit for inspiring your Simmons says Sunday Notes column. As noted, this is your signature. Some readers, Steve, they don't even realize that you also write on other days of the week. Well, it's it's funny because if, if I'm walking around town or someone comes up to me at a restaurant or, or at a bar or wherever, I always get, I love the Sunday column. I never, ever heard anyone say, I love the Tuesday column or whatever day it happens to be because I don't really have a schedule of days anymore. I just write when I, when I need to or have to. But people have, have taken to this thing. It is my signature as you say and sometimes it's my curse and it means that every saturday for the last 30 some years when everybody's enjoying their long weekends i'm in my office trying to figure out what to put in the column or trying to figure out how it's going to work but it all started because at the time parish had left the toronto's i left the toronto star for the sun and frank Orr was one of the big uh, sports writers at the toronto sun a uh, toronto star sorry and Frank Orr wrote a column on Sundays called Either Or. And it was, I think it was about 90% hockey. And it was, you know, 
note, dot, 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 note, dot, 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 you know, typical notes column form. He says, I want you to come up with something to, you know, I don't compare as the way to put it, just something to match it. He wanted to have something. So he came up with a, I came up with the format to start and it ran down the side of a page on Sunday and it was called Simmons on the Side. And it ran down just one column and it was about 600 words in length. The 600 words in length then went to a full page at one point in time, and I don't remember when. Then when Bill Pierce took over as sports editor, it went from one page to two the two pages it is now. And so it's like 20, it's about 2,200 words every Sunday, which is about the same length of three columns. And it also goes out by email to anyone who wants to, to sign up for that, can get it for free on Saturdays before it comes in the paper on Sunday. But it's just taken on a life of its own. And one thing we get, we get these um, now with the anal- with analytics and all that, we get actual numbers of people who's reading, uh, how many people are clicking on an article, and not just how, how many people are clicking, but how long are they engaging. So it's not like I'm looking at the thing and then I'm signing off. We can get actual time of commitment that people are putting into reading you know, the stuff that I write. And so the Sunday call, because of the length, I believe, has the longest engagement of anything in post media. So, you know, as the world's getting crazier and crazier and things are, you know, people are losing jobs, unfortunately, left, right and center in the media business. My Sunday notes numbers are ridiculous. Last week, I think, or two weeks ago, I was number two for the week. I was beaten out by volleyball player insists her breasts are real um which tells you a lot about who i work for you you can't compete with that kind of coverage steve now of course as you know analytics you can now measure all kinds of things but at the end of the day i know you still love reader feedback i want to know if, how much you pay attention to reader feedback and these days does it come primarily from the sun's online comments section or is it via twitter or do readers email you directly you get the odd email not as many as you used to get. You used to get a lot of them. And you still do when you hit a nerve or or something that people really like. But more people write more often when they're angry than when, they, when they're happy. I still like the personal touch of email and the fact that someone's name is signed to it and all that. What I have done is I have chosen, partly because I'm not Mr. Popular on social media, to ignore social media for the most part. And I've learned to not engage on Twitter and to not interact with um, some very smart people and some very crazy people. And and so just over time, I thought for my own benefit, and I think I've got a pretty thick skin, but for my own benefit, I just needed to not um, see it much anymore. And and so I don't. And I hear about it from from my kids or from my friends or from somebody else. It certainly shows there is a limit to uh, getting reader feedback. Maybe there is too many aspects or uh, mediums to receive that now. Within the Sunday Notes column, Steve, hey, whatever happened to is my personal favorite part. Is there a methodology to choosing that week's ostensibly forgotten sports personality from the past? Well, I like to time the whatever became of to an event. So Wimbledon's going on. I'll try and find a tennis player. Stanley Cup playoffs are going on. Maybe I'll find somebody who did something in the playoffs 10 or 15 years ago. Sometimes I, I can find a, a, a something to fit in that, and sometimes I can't. 
And so first off, you have to find the name. And after 30 some years of, of doing it, you know, it's, it's, it gets tougher and tougher every single year because you look back, you've used up a lot of people. But the strange thing is people I don't know, people I see on the streets, people I see in a barber shop or wherever I happen to go, a bakery, they'll just, they'll just throw, I'll walk by and they'll yell, you know, Darcy Tucker, what's that? Said, whatever it became of, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, and people seem to really love that thing. Some people have asked me why I don't like actually say where they are or, or do a little bit on, on who, you know, where is Juan Guzman today kind of thing. And the problem I found with it was, and I thought about doing that was some of the people are easy to track and some aren't. And for, for a one line in a column, it's a question of how much time can you take to research, you know, what needs to be done. And in some cases, I'm not sure I could even find the people. But one of the fascinating things to me is you throw a name out and then the guy gets besieged with phone calls and emails and did you see your names in there and blah, blah, blah. And, and then I'll get an email or a phone call from some ex, usually it's from ex-hockey players more than anything else. Some ex NHL player who said, "Oh, thanks for for putting my name in there. I got like I was hearing from all my old friends, you know, today." And so I just keep keep it out there and and try it. And it's hard to be thing. And one thing I have to do, and I messed it up at least twice and maybe three times, is 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 when you have a whatever became of dead guy. The first one I ever did was Bill Nyrop. I don't know if you remember that name from the Montreal yeah, New York Islanders, and I forgot that he had passed and I didn't do the diligence to, to check. And so now I almost always, always, always check. But when I test, what I find is that I test my memory, um, my memory gets, has gotten worse over time. And, and so I think the other one, I had a, a Russian defenseman who was killed in that plane crash. Uh, and I had, and when you do it, see today, now that the column goes out on, on Saturday, it's like sending it out to thousands of editors. They write back all the mistakes you make come back and they throw them at you. Did you know you did this? Did you know you made this mistake? Did you know so-and-so's dead? And so by the time it gets in the paper, it's already been fixed. But, you know, that's an that's an embarrassment. It should never ever happen. It's happened, I think, you know, two or three times in 30 years. Well, over all these years and all these people, I'm not surprised. And as you say, now you got thousands of editors instead of just one. And so it'll tighten it up. On that note, Steve, let's do a blue and white, Toronto-centric, hey, whatever happened to you, please provide any updates or any interesting anecdotes you have. We can bang out a few of these if you don't mind. Let's start with some Argo running backs. Cedric Minter. I don't know where Cedric Minter is, but the strangest thing is his face shows up on my Facebook every <laughs> once in a while as a, not a friend request. Do you know this person? You know that? I think, well, I think that's what it says. You know, someone you might you know, no. And Cedric Minter is there. I don't think I've seen or heard from Cedric Minter since he stopped playing for the Argos. He was an awfully good CFL player at the time. I think he played a little bit in the NFL with the Jets, um, but I haven't seen Cedric or spoken to him in years. Terry Metcalf. Another guy. It's funny. I, I got to know his son a little bit when he was playing in the NFL, uh, Eric Metcalf. And Terry Metcalf, I don't know if people remember was a great NFL player. 
And in the near the end of his NFL career, he decided to come and play in the CFL. I guess the money in those days was pretty good to come up here. And he came up here and he was okay. He wasn't like legendary like he was in the NFL. Um, but I remember having conversations with his son about dad and, and, and the excitement of all that. But again, here's a guy I've not seen or spoken to in, I don't know, maybe 30 years. Gil the Thrill Fennerty. We're getting a full house backfield here. Again, another guy, Gil Fennerty was a great Argo. I think he went to the New Orleans Saints after that and had a short run in the NFL. And he was, you know, he was the rare, hard-nosed, white NFL running back. You don't see very many of those today or even then. And uh, again, I have not seen or spoke. I think Gil played most of his football in Toronto before I came to to the city, but I sure knew him from, you know, I covered the Stampeders in Calgary and, and sure knew him from that. Steve, my personal favorite growing up, I had the number 10 jersey, wide receiver Terry Greer. I think he's the greatest receiver that's, that the CFL has ever seen. Uh, I think he's the greatest receiver that certainly the Argos have ever had. I always put Terry Greer and Mervyn Fernandez, who played with the BC Lions and later the Oakland Raiders, as the two greatest most electric CFL receivers I've ever seen. Terry Greer played at a level, you know, that was so far beyond anyone else of the time. And he went to, I thought he was going to be an NFL like star. He went to the NFL. I think he went to the Cleveland Browns and then to the San Francisco 49ers. And I'm pretty sure he won two Super Bowls as a like fourth or fifth receiver who barely played. And so he got that excitement in the in the in the great years of the 49ers but i'm not sure i think he just got in the cfl hall of fame a year or two ago because he didn't play long it took him a long time to get in because i think he only had like five years here but the five years that he had were spectacular and him and coverage holloway as a pair were were spectacular in those days well steve i don't see how you i don't see how you can see my notes from across the video, but Conrad Holloway is the next name I want to hear about. Well, Conrad Holloway was, again, in today's world, Conrad Holloway is an NFL quarterback. Uh, Back when he came to the CFL, you know, the NFL was not employing very many African-American quarterbacks. And so Holloway came here and he split in originally in Ottawa with Tom Clements, who then went on to, you know, become Aaron Rodgers's big coach with the Green Bay Packers. And Holloway went on to become, I think, the athletic director at Tennessee. Well, right now, there's a basketball player who's just, I think he's going to Auburn this year. And I believe he's the grandson of Conrich Holloway and Dave Ramey. The combination of genes there. And this kid apparently is one of, he's going to be in the Canadian pool of upcoming basketball players because he has Canadian some citizenship in him. Uh, and so remember the name Holloway? I, th- I think he's Holloway, goes by Holloway, uh, and he'll be at Auburn this coming season in basketball. Well, now we're all feeling a lot older when you say that. Ragheep the Rocket, Ishmael. Whatever became of the Rocket? If I say I don't care, well, is that the wrong answer? I, I think honest, it's the wrong answer, but go ahead. He's one of the most miserable shits of a human being I've ever come across. And 
here, here's the best way I could describe it. They paid Rocket Ismail an enormous amount of money to come and sort of save the Argos and save the CFL and be a star. And what a player he was, what a talent he was. But he had zero ability to hang in there and answer the questions and do the commercials and do the, they wanted him to do a TV show. He wouldn't do that. They wanted him to do a radio show. He wouldn't do that. And, and Paul Woods, who's an Argo historian and uh, an old friend of mine from Western, he did a book, I think last year or two years ago, called the year of the rocket. And it was all about how they got, he was going to be the first pick of, think about this in today's terms. He was going to be the first pick in the NFL draft. And he wound up signing with the Argos instead, which was, it was front page news of the New York Times at the time. And it was like enormous, enormous stuff. Paul did a book, a really good book on, on the year of the rocket. And in the book, Ismail refused to be interviewed. And I'm thinking, this is what, 30 years later? I don't, I don't I, I'm terrible with time, but it's a long time. No, I think it was 91. So it's 32 years later or 30 years later, probably when Paul wrote the book, and he wouldn't talk about it. Like, what kind of prick are you? I, you know, I, I just didn't understand that. Well, a person very closely associated because he enabled Rocket to come to Toronto. He did the crime. He did the time. Former Three Amigos Argos owner, Bruce McNall. Whatever became of Bruce McNall, we don't hear about him. Well, Bruce McNall went to prison. He got involved in sort of money laundering and some other phony business and he was he was a clever, clever, and very entertaining man. So long as you weren't a bank and he wasn't stealing from you. And he so he only argos for the short time with Wayne Gretzky and John Candy, and then afterwards, you know, got indicted and wound up in jail with some of the other people who were involved with the Argos at the time. And then he got out, and really he's he's been very kind of low key ish since since he's gotten out. I haven't seen Bruce. I think since he's been out, I may, I may have seen him once in Los Angeles at something, but he was an enjoyable, entertaining man. He had incredible charisma and he's one of the, if you, if you ever read, there's a Vanity Fair story about McNall and how he basically, you know, stole the money that he stole. It's a fa- it's one of the most fascinating articles. I'm surprised no one's made this into a movie because he fooled the banks because they wrote uh, financial documents that were so complicated and sophisticated that the bankers reading them would not admit that they didn't understand what they were. And so they just kept lending Bruce money and lending Bruce money. And Bruce was living the high life. Really, he didn't have any money. Uh, He was living the high life off stuff he was stealing from banks. And my favorite story is he owed, I think, $9 million to one bank. And somehow he went to another bank and convinced them that he needed money. So he took, he borrowed $9 more million. He took that $9 million to the other bank. And they were so impressed that he paid back the money that they lent him more money. So it was like, he just stole $9 million from this bank to give to that bank. We're going to give you more money and you still have the, like, he lived the highlight. He lived the, you know, private jets and, and, you know, three piece suits and and the restaurants and, and, you know, celebrity life. And he loved nothing better than to have, you know, it's funny because we still see Matt Dunnigan now on, on, you know, CFL games and on the panel, sometimes like 
doing color as well. And Matt Dunnigan was one of the guys. He was the quarterback of the Argos when McNall and those guys were bringing Rocket in. And, and Matt was part of that whole process because he was part of the selling. But he was like flying. You know, he was going to Rodeo Drive and they were buying him suits and, and all that. It's just a different world from, you know, we see the CFL now is like hand to mouth. And it, it was very different when Bruce McNall was around. Well, love him or hate him, you, you can't deny he had charisma, as you know. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 150 additional episodes available anytime. We've got Nelson Millman, John Shannon, Jesse Fuchs, Body Breaks Hal Johnson, and the fastest man on the planet, Donovan Bailey. How they did it, directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. On our blue and white tour, Steve, let's move over to the Blue Jays. Tomorrow I'll be perfect. Dave Steve. You know, a lot of people don't like Dave Steve. I seem to get along with him because he would be caustic. And if you were caustic back to him, it's, like, it's kind of like he kind of respected it. One day he was having a, I don't know if the press conference is the right way, an availability. And the people were told, come and see Dave Steve at 2.30. So I don't know why, whether I got caught in traffic or something. I, I was late and I got there maybe 3.15. So Steve's at his locker. And in those days, the players all hung at their lockers. And I walked up to Steve and his first line, what do you want? And told him what happened. And he said, you know, this was this was 2.30. And they, I said, so he asks me again, what do you want? I said, 250 words. I'll write the other 500. And, and he laughed and that was sort of the relationship. Dave Steve was one of the greatest. Com- he should be in the Baseball Hall of Fame, by the way. Um, Agreed. If you, go, if you go by today's statist- newfangled statistics, he's a great pitcher. I mean, he was a great pitcher anyhow, but this, the new stats have made him even a better pitcher. I hope that one of these years he gets one of those veteran committee selections. But he was a guy who was hard to play with and was hard to play for. If you if you made an if you made an error, he stared you down and gave you that Dave Steed glare that you didn't want. He was a perfectionist, and so he expected, you know, his book is tomorrow I'll be perfect, but he wanted every day to be perfect. And you know, you think in today's terms, where if a pitcher goes six innings, you know, we have a standing ovation and get all excited. And how many times did Dave Steed take a no hitter into the ninth? Like I don't know the number, but it's a lot. Bobby Cox gets his due. Cito Gaston gets his due. How about former manager Jimmy 1M Williams? Did not like Jimmy Williams. I think I think Jimmy Williams was the perfect third base coach for the Blue Jays. He fit the role. Bobby Cox was, you know, was a great manager, as we saw later in Atlanta. Uh, very successful manager. And, and Jimmy was the hand-picked everyone's choice to be the guy. And this happened, you see this in the NFL quite often. The offensive or defensive coordinator is great at being the offensive and defensive coordinator, but when he comes to becoming the head coach, maybe he's not really cut out to be that. And I think that's what it was with Jimmy. He was very suspicious when he became the manager. I think he he lost his way maybe for a while. I think it came back to him later in his career when he when he managed in other places. But in Toronto, he was not the right. He was the wrong choice at the wrong time for a Blue Jays team that was so close to winning. They were close. I remember that vividly. Let's move on to the Toronto Raptors. Oliver Miller. That's funny. 
Oliver Miller is, I think, outside of now, offensive lineman, was the fattest pro basketball player of all time. And Oliver Miller, bless him, I was told, may have set an NBA record in his first season in Toronto for the amount of women who entered his hotel room. Um, he was an active man. Um, he, he was a better player than you might have thought for a guy who was that out of shape and overweight. He had terrific hands. You know, those that early Raptors team, uh, you know, today everything is so managed and, and whatever. They had so many characters on that team, and it was kind of fun to be around them because, you know, the, I'm not going to say they were crazy, but they were all rejects from teams that didn't, for the most part, other than Damon Stoudemire, they were rejects from teams that didn't want them. And they were either here just to have a good time at the end of their career or to see if they can't find a job somewhere else later. Uh, John Sally was here at the time. John Sally is one of the most entertaining athletes I've ever been around. But, that, but by the time he came to Toronto, he knew his career was over. He knew it was pretty much near the end. Although I think he had a run with the Bulls after that when he might have won a championship or two. But all John Sally wanted to do was all we talked about were restaurants. Like, where do I go? What should I eat? At? Uh, I'm a restaurant nut. And so him and I were always, Did, have you eaten here? Have you tried this place? You know, where's your best steakhouse? Where's your best this? And and so my conversations with John Sally were never about basketball and always about where are we eating tomorrow. You got to find common ground. Another player from that era that I particularly enjoyed was Doug Christie. I didn't know Doug Christie particularly well, if I recall. What I did know was that his wife was one of, other than Vince Carter's mom, was about the most involved person with his career. Like he would be like at the free throw line signaling his wife. Like I don't think he walked out the door of his house without permission from her. He was a pretty good NBA player, Doug Christie, and a really good defender. Um, I'm not sure where he is. I think he might be coaching somewhere now or broadcasting. But he he was better than most of the Raptors of the day. He was a little more accomplished and a little more... Some of those guys weren't that serious in the early years. I want your uh, thoughts or memories of the Raptors management duo, Brian Colangelo and Isaiah Thomas. Isaiah Thomas, um, they used to call him the smiling assassin because he had the beautiful... He has that gorgeous smile. Um, but if you weren't looking, he would... He would snatch your purse. Isaiah was a great guy to, to get along with from a press perspective so long as you were with him. Like if you were supportive of what he was doing, you were his best friend. The minute you weren't, he turned on you fast. One thing I'll say for Isaiah, he was a phenomenal judge of talent. Like he took Stoudemire when you know nobody was pushing for Stoudemire in that draft. I think he took Marcus Camby in the, in the next draft and then took McGrady. Again, you know, I remember the coach of the Raptors at the time had zero use for Tracy McGrady and, and Isaiah saying, play him, play him, play him. But Isaiah was a conspiracy theorist and a conspiracy sort of doer. And he tried at one time to purchase the Raptors when the Raptors were for sale. And he tried to put a deal together and when he couldn't get it done, he then tried to sabotage the franchise. He talked Stoudemire into asking out, and he 
honestly, he tried to blow up the Raptors in their early years when they were still in a position where they might have been blown up. And what about Brian Colangelo? Brian Colangelo uh, grew up in the sports business. His dad, Jerry Colangelo, was a big deal in the NBA. And so Brian, you know, became, he's an impressive man when you first meet him. You know, he's he's well-dressed and well put together and, and, you know, big handshake and, you know, that he he presents extraordinarily well. Over time here, you could see he was a little bit of a flim-flam kind of executive, you know, nice suit, not much in the suit kind of thing. And I think we found out in Philadelphia later when, you know, his wife was doing the fake Twitter accounts and all the stuff that ended up costing him basically his career in the NBA. You know, that was a little bit, you know, you see, what's the old line from the Wizard of Oz? You know, don't look, don't look behind the curtain. And that was what Brian was. And I, I again, I got along very well with him in the early times. I'll, I'll tell you a quick Brian Colangelo story. I was on a radio show that may have been like the lowest rated, nobody listens to radio show in the world. I was on as a guest. And the topic became Brian Colangelo. And I happened to use the word baffle gab. In describing, you know, how he spoke. And that's a good word, by the way. And about an hour after the show was over, my phone rings. And it's Brian Colangelo calling. And the first words, he doesn't say hello. First words out of his mouth. Baffle gab. What's that? And I'm thinking to myself, Brian, you're running an NBA team. Why would you be listening to this interview on this nowhere radio station that no one in the world is even listening to. That was him though. He was so paranoid about, you know, the world around him and how he was being perceived and treated and all that. He was a lot more about image than he ever was about production. Well, Steve, let's close our tour of the blue and white, of course, with our maple beliefs. Rocky Saganuk. I met Rocky Saganuk after his career was over. He played when I was a, you know, a high school kid and maybe in university. And then I got to know him a little bit. He lived in Chicago. And so, you know, if the Leafs were playing in Chicago, Rocky Saginaw somehow would, would, would appear in the press box or appear around. So I really didn't get to know him real well. I think he played once in, in that Baycrest hockey tournament that I played in uh, uh, several times. And I, I, we talked a few a little bit there. But I, I don't know him particularly well or have, like, memories other than the fact that he was – you know, kind of a fun hockey player to watch when he played for the Leafs. We got to ask you about the lightning rod of all lightning rods, Larry Murphy. It's funny. Larry Murphy was never as bad as Toronto thought he was. It's funny. At the end, Cliff Fletcher knew that he had to get Larry Murphy out of Toronto. Like the fans had just turned on him and Larry had had a pretty good run in, in Washington and in Los Angeles and, and uh, good enough later to be going to the Hall of Fame. But Cliff calls, uh, I think, Jimmy Davilano at the time, the general manager of the Red Wings, and says, you know, I got to get Larry Murphy out of Toronto. Do you want him? And Davilano is like, what do I want Larry Murphy for? Like, I don't have any reason to have want Larry Murphy. He said, you know, Cliff's not as bad as you think he is. Like, you know, he probably can be your six, seven, eight defenseman if you need a six, seven, eight. And I can't remember. And I think he gave him to him basically for almost nothing. Because um, he had to get him out of Toronto because he was getting booed. So he goes to Detroit. And I think it's Scotty Bowman. It was Scotty Bowman also involved in this. I remember Scotty Bowman uh, didn't want him either. But 
you know, I think they finally agree, well, okay, we'll take them. And in that day, general managers were much different than they were, you know, much more sort of, I'll do you a favor, you do me a favor kind of guys than they are today. And so he goes to Detroit. What does Scotty do? He pairs him with Nicholas Lidstrom. He's with the second greatest defenseman of all time. And Larry has a great ending to his career. And I think he won, they went two or three, three cups, I think, with the Red Wings and got elected. I was a bit surprised elected to the Hall of Fame, but, but nonetheless, you know, you're in the Hall of Fame, you're there forever. I agree with you. He was underappreciated in Toronto. It, was, it wasn't as bad as everyone said. Steve, in addition to whatever happened to spurring people to write you that, yes, they're still alive and they're, here's what they're up to, you also have a segment with birthday wishes, and this apparently inspires old friends to reconnect. What happens is, is I, put, you know, I put about 10 birthdays a week for pro athletes, a lot of whom had a connection to Toronto in one way or another. And so I know that, that in the past you put a guy's name in, you put a birthday in, and then suddenly guys who don't realize it's somebody's birthday get on the phone and call and, and you know, how you doing? Good to talk to you, you know, blah, blah, blah. Can't believe you're 52 or whatever age it happens to be. One of the things that I find, because you never consider yourself aging, even though you are. And then you start looking at the athletes that were sort of your athletes, you know, I always go back to when you're a teenager or when, when it, you know, when sports mattered more than any other time in your life. And you think the guys who are, you know, playing in the NHL when I was a teenager are now late seventies, early eighties. It's like, you know, I'll, I'll see, like, I think Phil Esposito just turned 80 and guys like that. And you're thinking, how, how is that possible? How can, how can these guys be 80? Of course, think how they feel. And some of some of the you know some of them age incredibly nicely, and some you know I think one thing with you see with with hockey players, old hockey players if they haven't had hip replacements are all limping. They all have that sort of wobbly cowboy kind of walk with uh, with bad hips. Well, it's like the Facebook effect. Your birthday gets mentioned, and we all think about uh, yes, we continue to age. One hundred and fifty people who you really don't care about wish you a happy birthday. Steve, your most recent best-selling book, A Lucky Life, Gretzky, Crosby, Kawhi, and more from the best seat in the house. This is a collection of your selected columns published between 86 and 2021. I understand you were thinking of calling the book, I Was There. Uh, that was my original title. Um, the publisher didn't like it. And the publisher came up with A Lucky Life, and I didn't like it. And it, it grew on me. The way the book came to be... Years and years ago, my mom, who's since passed, had always said, you know, you've had so many experiences, you've done so many things, you should write a book about all of that. So I always threw my mom's ideas, of course, the way we all do, you know, to the left and, and continued on. And then um, a bunch of group of friends were hanging around one night, maybe having dinner somewhere or barbecuing or something. And we started playing the where were you game, you know. Where were you when Man on the Moon happened? Where were you when Kennedy was shot? Where were you when Paul Henderson scored? As we got into more sporting things, post-1972, all the where were you moments was, okay, where were you when this happened? I was there. Where were you when that happened? I was there. Where were you when this happened? I was there. And I'm thinking to myself, there is a book maybe in this. And then Walter Gretzky died, Wayne Gretzky's father. And shockingly, the death of a hockey player's father was the lead story on the national news, both CBC and CTV. Like, can you imagine any other father passing away? It would be Walter Gretzky was the national hockey dad. 
you know, of Canada and maybe the United States as well. And Wayne Gretzky's last NHL game, I got sent to New York to cover it. And what amazed me about the story that day or what intrigued me was everything that Wayne did, Walter was part of. And he, he drove to the rink that morning with his dad. Like, what do you do when you play hockey as a kid? Who drives you? Your dad or your mom drive you to the rink. Your dad ties your skates. You, you, you play your game. You get back in the car. You drive home. You talk about the game in the car. That's sort of life in Canada. And so I wrote a piece that day about, you know, Wayne Gretzky's last game and Walter and the relationship and the two of them. And when and Walter died, I thought, this is a really good piece. Like, I really liked it when I wrote it. And the more I read it back after, I really liked it after. And so I had to leave the book off with that. It, it's, you know, the biggest sort of sporting star in Canadian history and the sporting dad who made the national news and the relationship between them. And, and so, and then the second piece in the book, you know, you fast forward to today, who's the biggest star in hockey? Connor McDavid. And the second piece in the book is Connor McDavid and his relationship, not with his dad, but with Sherry Basson, who was the general manager of the Erie Otters, who was in his mid seventies to, to late seventies as GM. While this 15, 16 year old phenom is, you know, becoming the next great thing. And it's all about how their relationship grew and what it came to be. And I've always been, as someone, I spent a lot of time coaching kids hockey and kids baseball, more hockey than anything else. I think I coached about a thousand games of minor hockey. I love the father, son, mother, son, sporting daughter relationship. Um, it's just such a precious thing. And I, and I have my kids in their thirties now. And honestly, I think their happiest times were when they were playing minor sports as kids. Like they still talk about the tournaments and the places they went and the people they met. And, and, and my oldest son who's now 36. So many of his friends are guys he played sports with when he was 10, um, the same people. And he's still playing, you know, pick up baseball and pick up hockey and all that kind of thing with the same guys. It is amazing. Um, my kid still talks about the hotels, not the ringette games, but the hotels. Yeah. And uh, it is the amazing how those memories. The hotel had to have a pool. You're not a good manager if you don't book the hotel with the pool. Steve, what's amazing to me, those are just two of the stories, how you possibly pared down, you had written over 9,000 columns. Now, I didn't go to such an esteemed school as York Mills. I was at AY Jackson. But even the math program there taught me that with my math skills, your 89 columns that made the book is less than 1% of your total work. How did you pare all those columns down and select what was ended up in the book? By the way, in 1975, we defeated AY Jackson in the North York football finals. I think it was 29 to 3. Great victory on behalf of the, of the mighty York Mills team. Finding the columns was really hard. I thought it was going to be really easy. What I did to start with is I sort of made a list of events I had been to and whether I could pick stories out of those events. And what you quickly found out was something you thought was good 20 years ago wasn't so good 20 years later. And something you thought may not have stood up or held up 20 years ago looked pretty good now. And so... I really tried to sort of go in different directions and find things that were historical, but also things that people would not know about. I, I made a point of having stories about people who, if you read it the first time and you didn't know the name, you would learn something about either a fascinating person or a person who changed sport or, or whatever. 
the hardest part was picking the columns and getting the ones you wanted. And then we had some, I had a very good editor out of Milwaukee and she did not know anything about Canadian sport, which I think was perfect because then she, her, her sort of vision opens up as to this is a good piece or this piece I like, this piece I don't like. And so she threw out a couple of pieces. We added in a couple of pieces. And one of the things I found after the fact was I found five or six that I was so sorry I left out. And and I wish I could sort of make the alterations now to get them in. But one of the things that's really made me happy is the response of people who I have great regard for, either in media or in sports or in journalism, who have read the book and and have enjoyed it and have sent me some very, very nice and thoughtful notes. And, you know, I don't know if, do you know, you know, the movie, The Big Chill? Yeah. Yeah. The Big Chill was a big movie of mine in the 80s. I, I love that film. And Jeff Goldblum played a writer for People Magazine in the movie. And they asked Jeff Goldblum at the time, how long are your pieces? And he says, well, my intention is I'm going to write this no longer than it takes the average person to take a dump. And so they could read this while sitting on the toilet. And my theory with this book is you don't have to read it in order. You just pick up and open up and open to a page and start reading. And because each of the columns are about two pages in length in the book, go on to the next one or, or go 20 pages further. Or if you don't like baseball and you want to read about basketball, if you don't like basketball, you want to read about football or, or people who I there's a whole section on guys who passed away in different personal things. And it was just hard to pick and choose. Again, it's like it's 1% of your work or less than 1%. I think if I was doing it now, I would probably change 10 of them. And if I did it a year from now, I'd probably change 10 more. And that's just the way it works. And it's a very hard, it was way harder to pick than I ever expected it to be. Well, I think it was a brilliant move to have a non-Canadian sports editor. And it was equally brilliant to have a absolute legend write your forward. Why and how did you ask the killer, Dougie Gilmore, to write the forward to your book? I don't know if you know the name Brian Wood. He's he's a book agent who does a lot of sports books in Canada, and he's he represents all kinds of people. And I don't tend to... And In previous books, I had really used agents. I'd done them on my own. But in this book, I wasn't sure anyone would be interested in it or caring enough to actually even publish it. Um, so I didn't want to have... 17 rejection letters on my doorstep. So I brought Brian in to, to help the process along. And and Brian says, well, we need, we, you need a forward. You need a forward from someone famous. So I made a list of about five people who sort of would fit the bill. And Doug Gilmore, being the hockey legend of Toronto that he is, and, and par, you know, not just of Toronto, he was, you know, one of the best players on the Stanley Cup champion Calgary Flames team that... Oh, Calgary Flames only won one Stanley Cup, and Gilmore was a significant part of that championship season. And so, he, to me, he has cachet right across the whole country. And he was the first phone call I made. And I said, Doug, uh, here's what I'm doing. I'm writing a book on this. I would love it if you could write the forward. And the conversation honestly lasted about a minute and a half. When you need a pipe. And that was how it went. And, you know, he wrote it. We cleaned it up a little bit because, you know, you know, they're not writers. But I was so happy that he did what he did. He didn't ask for any money. I sent him a couple of books. 
and and sign them. Thank you for for everything. And you know what? I cherish the words he wrote because it's funny. We spent a lot of time. I, I covered him in Calgary. I covered him in Toronto. I covered him after he left Toronto, and I covered him internationally when he played for Canada. I was at World Championships that he was at. So we had a sort of a a, a love hate relationship, which is kind of the best way to have relationships with most athletes because if you're honest and they're honest, you know that's that's the way it went. We had that kind of relationship, and, and he wrote about it in the forward. And I thought he really captured what I'm proudest of about my career. It's I can be harsh in what I write. I can be controversial. Some people think I like to think I'm really honest and and opinionated and provocative. But sometimes you have fights because of, of that, or sometimes you have problems because of that. And I thought what Gilmore captured in the thing he wrote was no matter what he wrote, he always showed, sort of showed up the next day. And he was always there to face the music. And I've made a point of, you know, there's an old expression in journalism about never be a hit and run artist. And I've never been one of those guys. And anytime I've written anything, almost, I would say 90% of the time or more, you know, I have been there the next day to face the music. Obviously, another great call from Brian Wood to have Doug Gilmore involved. I want to give a shout out to Brian Wood. He has been a past guest on this podcast. He's also a poet in addition to a literary agent. So he is a great guy and obviously he knows his job. Steve, you've been great with your time. I would be remiss if I did not close with something that you're, I'm sure you're absolutely exhausted talking about, but but because it's timely again, we must talk, if I may, about the Iron Man himself, three-time Stanley Cup champion, Philip Kessel, sickness cured. Kessel gone was the headline to what was otherwise known as the hot dog story. You wrote a column suggesting that the Toronto Maple Leafs were happy to finally be rid of Phil Kessel in the July 1st, 2015 trade to the Pittsburgh Penguins, and this led to you being blasted for asserting that Kessel had eaten a street meat hot dog every day outside his condo in downtown Toronto, although you acknowledged that the reported location of the hot dog consumption was inaccurate you stood by the rest of the column, and indeed, Kessel has never denied it. And in fact, he, of course, has gleefully incorporated hot dog images into his personal brand. And of course, the late-breaking update, almost a full decade later, Iron Man Phil, apparently, he cannot let his disdain for the trial media go, even after his recent third Stanley Cup championship. Said Phil, just last week, takes me back to my Toronto days. You guys said I couldn't win. And now I'm a three-time champ. Remember that. Steve Simmons, was that dig directed 50, 75, or 100% at you? Oh, I would say not 50. I would say less than that because there were other members of the media that he had, I think, even more disdain for at times than he had for me. I thought for the most part, I treated Phil rather fairly in his time playing for the Leafs. The piece in question that got all the noise I always say if you took the first two sentences off that story and you go from the second sentence to the bottom of the story, it's the most accurate portrayal of why the Maple Leafs trade itself. And it's funny. I'll tell you a story. Brendan Shanahan went to work the morning after the deal and he was the person who wanted Phil Kessel out. And he went to work and in the office, everyone is giggling. And he can't figure out why is everyone giggling. 
And and so what's what's up? He says, did you see Simmons' column today? And he and he said, no. He said, go read it. It looks like you wrote it. And, and because almost everything in there was the Maple Leafs' belief in why they couldn't start a rebuild with Phil as part of it. And so they made the deal. I still, yeah, and I wanted to go back to the hot dog thing for a second because I had gone to my boss in about March and one of my son's friends was living in the same condo Phil was living in. And he was the one who put me on to the eating hot dogs outside every afternoon kind of thing. And it's funny because he used to go with Tyler Bozak to Subway all the time, but that was a whole other thing. So I said to my, my boss and I talked with them. This would make a great photo. This would make a great photo for like the front page of the sun. You know, Phil outside having a hot dog in the afternoon, always with a toucan, by the way. And so we never got around to booking it. And so what happened on the day of the of the trade, I'm working at TSN all day on, on trade deadline day, or sorry, on, on July 1st, the, you know, whatever they call it, free agent frenzy, and write the column and mess up the the streets. And I became like public enemy number one for for that. And some people, you know, in the, John, was it, who's the guy in the States that uh, used to do the thing on ESPN, worst person in the world? I was the worst person in the world two days in a row. I think that might be a record on ESPN. But funny thing was, Phyllis never said a word to me, not one about the column. And he, he's gone. He went on and he played a huge role in two Stanley Cup championships in Pittsburgh. If you look back, he almost won the Smythe the first time. And he had a good playoff the second time. He had real impact on a team with where he didn't have to be the best player. When Phil had to be the best player, he was never good enough to be your best player. But behind Crosby and Malkin and Latang, he could be the next best guy. And, and he was, you know, phenomenally skilled, especially as a passer, just an amazing passer. So here we are all these years later. And I found this one a bit funny. Not that, look at me, I, I got my third cup. It wasn't, look at me, I've been a healthy scratch now for every game since game four of the playoffs. So I don't know, how many games did Vegas play? 21, I don't know. It was a 17-game healthy scratch or whatever the number of games it was. I'm not so sure after I was healthy scratch for that many games in a row, you know, that I would be running and taking shots at anyone. But it fills Phil, he's one of a kind. You know, whether his career is up or not, I don't know. Vegas found that they were better off having, you know, guys who would go into the corners and, and fight for loose pucks and all that stuff on their third and fourth lines, and then they didn't want him. That was a decision made by Bruce Cassidy and not by media and not by me or anyone else. And so, you know, if this is how his career ends, wonderful. He gets a third cup and another ring, and that's great. Give him credit for those two cups in Pittsburgh. He played a large role on those teams. But I don't think anyone ever said he couldn't be the third best player on the team or the fourth best player on the team. I think what people in Toronto said, I got a Mike Babcock story quickly go about yeah, please. They hire Babcock to coach. And the first thing I tend to do when a new hire comes, whether it's a coach or a GM or whatever, is you sit down with the guy and you sort of set ground rules. How are we going to get along? How are we going to communicate? Are we going to text? Are we going to talk on the phone? You know, what do you want to do? What works best for you? And Babcock says, I don't do any private conversations. I don't go off the record. I don't text. I don't, I'll do my four or five minutes a day that everyone in the media gets. And that's what I'll do. 
So we're continuing the conversation. We're on the phone. And I said, do you want Phil Kessel on your team? And this is about two minutes after saying, I don't go off the record. First thing out of Mike's mouth is, can we go off the record for a minute? I really wanted to say, you just said we can't. And then he went on to say that he didn't want Phil anywhere near you know, his, his team because of his work habits and, and whatever else. And, and it's funny, the Iron Man who, who you know, barely ever worked out, he had such amazing natural power and ability and talent that maybe he didn't have to train the way so many other guys do. But Babcock, who was starting the process, and Shanahan, who was starting the process of rebuilding you know, the Maple Leafs into sort of the lost juggernaut that they are now, you know, they, he didn't want anything to do with Phil. Thank you for putting up with that question again and providing all these details. I think it's a great summary. Phil is Phil. And by the way, Steve, for the record, the uh, ESPN Sports Center anchor that called you the worst person in the world was uh, Keith Olbermann. And it's funny, uh, years later, uh, when I was doing radio with Dave Naylor, Keith Olbermann was, uh, was a guest. So I had to mention to him, do you, do you remember calling me the worst you know, person in the world two days in a row? And he had zero recollection of it at all. And I suspect what happens in those situations that, is that the producers come up with these things and the producers feed you, here's yours for today. Keith Olbermann has been a legend in American broadcasting, but he had no recollection of this at all. And I've been living with it for you know 10 years or whatever it's been. As they say, it's business. It ain't personal. Yes. Steve? I want to thank you for all your time. You've been very generous with your time and your stories. What are you working on? What's the next book or project that you can uh, talk about? I think just getting through getting through the weeks now. We're not, by we, I mean post-media. We're not traveling anymore. Everybody in the media business is cutting, 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 cutting. And so travel has been cut after years of spending 100 days a year on the road. So... A large part of what you do is you meet people when you're out on the road and you make contacts and you get stories that way. And and so many of the things I've done over the years that I'm proudest of are from live events at some place. Now it's more looking and using the telephone and, and texting people and that kind of thing. It's not the same. So it's harder to be to be good, to be, in my opinion, on a daily basis. Um, more reliance on opinion and context and less reliance on interviewing. So much of my career has been based on interviewing. And so it's really a challenge now to to be good three or four times a week and to fill up Sunday, you know, without, you know, so many, so much of what you pick up for a Sunday column will come from being, you know, at, at a morning skate or at batting practice or, or whatever it is we do. If you're not there, if you're only there for home games and relationships aren't, you can't get the dressing room access we used to get. So add these things together and it's become harder and harder to know the people you're writing about when at one time you knew them quite well. And you got another book in you or is that uh, one process you don't uh, want to do again? I have books in my head that won't happen until I retire. It kind of, when I did the lost dream, it took a full year to, to write that book, the Mike Danton, David Frost book. And uh, it took a full year and it took an emotion. It really beat the whatever out of me emotionally because it was a hard book to do. And so I don't want to get in, involved with another book like that while I'm 
writing and, and writing regularly and still doing the job. You can't do a book like that as a part-time thing. And so the next books I want to do, if I do them, will probably come after I retire. Well, that will not be soon because I have to look forward to next Sunday's Whatever Happened To. Steve Simmons, it was great talking to you today, and I want to wish you continued success. Thank you. and enjoyed it. It was my pleasure. And to the listeners, on behalf of Steve Simmons, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holawati from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. I'm Sarah Burke, and I host the Women in Media podcast, where I'm exploring the challenges women face in the media spotlight and celebrating our triumphs. My guests come from radio, TV, news, and sports, and we'll cover topics like leadership, diversity, stereotypes, and more. Most of all, I'm looking to build a community through a space where we can discuss anything. The Women in Media podcast, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at womeninmedia.ca.